This week's episode of The Kicker is brought to you by the Scripps Howard Awards. The Scripps Howard Awards, one of the nation's most prestigious journalism competitions, will accept entries through February 2nd. The 65th annual competition will present $170,000 in prize money for work across 16 different categories. Go to shawards.org for information and to enter. That's shawards.org. Hey guys, I'm Pete Vernon, and this is The Kicker, a podcast about all things media from the Columbia Journalism Review. Facebook is done with journalism. At least that's what media critic Frederic Filou declared in his influential Monday note this week in response to Mark Zuckerberg's announcement that the platform would be tweaking its newsfeed to favor updates from friends and family over content from publishers. This move is pretty significant for those of us in journalism. And to dive more into that, we're joined by one of my favorite guests, Emily Bell, director of the Tao Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia University. Emily, thank you for being here. Thank you. It's one of my favorite podcasts as well, Pete. Oh, well, we'll continue the love fest, although it might not extend to Mark Zuckerberg. Well, no. So he's made himself <laughs> he's made himself spectacularly predictably unpopular, actually, by saying I'm going to take my ball. I'm not going to take my ball away. I'm just going to move it over to this end of the yard. Does that make us Charlie Brown to his Lucy with the football? Well, I think that... Do you have that in England? We do have that in okay. England. Um, we don't have that sort of football, but we have right, the right. we have the peanuts <laughs> metaphor. Um, well, I think a couple of things, one of which is there's been a lot of sort of not exactly dramatic overreaction, but you would think that given the nature of publishers' relationships with Facebook... Actually, most of them, I think, have seen this coming for some time. They've already seen their traffic declining. They've already adjusted their businesses for it. I have a theory which may be completely un, un, wrong. Um, but when we saw lots of layoffs from places like BuzzFeed last year, I think part of it is just an, a, a kind of a grown-up understanding that Facebook was not going to carry on as it was before. It has its own problems to fix. You know, we've seen the fake news scandal. We've seen the problem of not knowing that Russians are buying ads on their the platform targeting minor US problems, voters. Minor, yeah. tiny problems of them interfering a little bit in the process of democracy. But, you know, kind of like the Facebook news feed is their product. They needed to do something to it. And managing news and how news appears in it at least addresses, as it were, one of the issues that they've been on the hook for. Can we back up a second and say what exactly Facebook is doing with that news feed? Well, what, what they've said they will do is that they will reprioritize, they will tweak the algorithm so that people see more from friends and family and less publisher posts. Now, this is exactly the same change that they made in June 2016 and almost exactly the same announcement as well, which said... You know, we, we're going to make sure that what you see from friends and family first is is prioritised. We want to downweight what publishers, um, are, you know, we don't want kind of people clogging up the, the news feed. They've gone a little bit further, I think, this time in say, I mean, there's a whole semantics course to be taken around Mark Zuckerberg's <laughs> pronouncements and the use of language in conveying these these um, changes. So they said we want to prioritize more meaningful engagement. Now Yeah, what is what does that mean, more meaningful? <sighs> you know <laughs> So what it means in Facebook land is instead of clickbaity 
likes and shares where somebody hasn't necessarily read a piece but is just sharing it, which is one of the problems of contagion around some of the sort of extremist political content or the propaganda or that they were experiencing in the 2016 election cycle. Things like people really engaging with the piece and then um, posting lengthy comments underneath it. Now, anyone who has run, <laughs> as I have, a newspaper website would know that lengthy comments underneath a piece are not necessarily a good thing, doesn't necessarily speak to, can often speak to uh, the kind of splenetic derangement that um, Facebook has been trying to kind of manage out of its feet. But it does mean that they are thinking, how can we get rid of the kinds of that the, their reputation is is one of being a spreader of uh, fake news and outrage? And can we prioritise things that just look a bit more sensible and thoughtful? The problem for publishers is we don't really know what this means until it works its way fully through. We don't know how much of that change has happened already, and we don't know how much is going to change for publishers over the next few months. So we're back to kind of the position that we always are with Facebook, which is throwing things at the black box and thinking, how do you build a strategy which is outside an ecosystem that isn't actually really designed for news publishers. Now, not knowing exactly what's going to happen and what this is going to look like hasn't stopped people from giving pronouncements about whether this is the death of certain publishers or actually a good thing for journalism. So I'll put you on the spot and say, even though we don't know exactly what this looks like, is there a possibility that this is a good thing for publishers? I think it's going to be good for certain types of publisher. And actually, oddly, I don't think it's necessarily going to favour social first publishers, so the people who designed their businesses to work around um, kind of the Facebook algorithm. So the BuzzFeeds, Mikes, you know, kind of et cetera, who were, I think it's going to favour legacy publishers because there have been hints that this will favour publishers that have what they call reputable content. Well, Mike and BuzzFeed do have reputable content, but that also have, uh, I think, subscription bases have been mentioned. So you can see how there's going to be a classification, which is what I always thought would happen. You know, kind of we, we came from a world with technology platforms where in the early days you had Google deciding who was a news provider and who wasn't, and that caused a lot of, um, if you like, sort of debate uh, about who really gets to decide the whitelist on Google News and is that democratic and, you know, da, 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 all the things that we've heard sort of rehearsed previously. Um, I think we're moving back to that model where Facebook will allow a certain number of publishers to flourish more than it will another set. But the only way you'll really know that is that over time and through measurement. So I think it will be good for certain types of publisher. Overall, I think the real issue here is you know, the idea that Facebook is falling out of love with news, it's falling out of certain love with certain types of news. The big question is, what if it becomes a publisher that only prioritises stuff which is not very important or controversial? And given the role it now plays as a primary news conduit for a lot of people, that's a big concern. So obviously they're moving away from news on some level. Are there other areas in which they're engaging? I mean, they, they launched the Facebook Journalism Project last year. They have paid lip service to the right. idea of wanting to provide people with good journalism, whether it's regional or national or international news. Is there any bright side of what Facebook's doing, perhaps away from the news feed? 
Well, I think that, you know, kind of the bright side is that we are having a big conversation about what its role should really be. And I know that sounds, <laughs> that's not great if you're expecting them to return several million dollars to you next quarter and they're not going to. So I think the upsides to this is that we're all having debate now about what what the role, not just of Facebook, but other technology platforms should be in this environment. And I know I always say that, but the fact is that when Facebook changes its news algorithm, we really need to know what it's doing and we need to be able to have a discussion about it because it's part of the public sphere now. It, it, it's created that for itself. It didn't necessarily want the responsibility for it, but now it's got it. And I think that, you know, that over the long term is a good position uh, to be in because at least we can start to think about what else do we need that's not Facebook and how else do we need to think about news which is not on Facebook. And that's one of the issues that publishers who have relied on Facebook are are already starting to address. I saw BuzzFeed uh, published an ad on Facebook ironically, um, encouraging people to download its app. Yeah. Well, this is going to lead to much more focus on owned and operated uh, than it is on distributed content, which I think is, that's a major change from the last sort of five years. You know, that's a, that's a real turnaround. I mean, one of the things that actually I thought, you know, on Facebook, which is where I get all my news, uh, <laughs> and because all of my friends seem to be in digital publishing one way or another, it hasn't changed at all for me. I just get more news. But uh, Wolfgang Blau, who is the publisher digital um, head at Conte Nast, floated, um, I thought, what was a really smart point where he said, you know, if Facebook wants to do well in territories like China or places where there is less uh, press freedom, it has to have, if you like, a blander offering. <laughs> then right. you know it can't be a kind of an outrage uh, propaganda machine. And I think we see things through a very Americentric lens of what does this mean for us in New York, and what does it mean for you know America and and our filter bubbles. Facebook's a big business, and all of these platforms are looking at kind of global growth, and they have to come up with solutions which work for whole markets. And I think that that's the really slightly sort of depressing thing about this. So we were looking for bright spots. I'm not going to find one. I'm going to find a slightly darker spot, which is. You know, there there have been noises from Facebook and Google in the past year about championing of press freedom, support of journalists, etc. We really need large institutions to underwrite press freedom now because journalistic institutions are not that strong and they're particularly not that strong worldwide. And what I would worry about is that we're going to end up in a situation where large platforms which aggregate the majority of attention don't feel that they have a civic duty to underwrite that kind of activity or to support it, even if it's not on their own platforms. You know, they are large enough organisations to really help journalism and high quality information reach audiences. If they disconnect from that and just say, it's look, it's down to the public and we're all about commercial messages, I think that's a really significant worry. So Mark Zuckerberg is not the press freedom advocate around the globe that we need right now? Well, we don't know. I mean, this is the other thing, which is that kind of, you know, he says, well, we want news, we want more meaningful. Connect. I mean, all of these kind of banana statements, which are, <laughs> which are completely sort of coded for us not to really know what they're doing. I think that, you know, we we do need Mark Zuckerberg to be a press advocate. I think what we're worried about is that he's just saying this is too hard and it's not why I am. I'm a technologist and you've all beaten me up for a year 
uh, and I'm now just going to show you what it's like when you have a player like this in the market that doesn't actually prioritize your interests and see how you like that. That's my worry is that this is a kind of a this, this is what he's really doing. Well, as we wait and see what this change actually means for publishers, thank you for being here to provide us with a little bit of a roadmap. I'll come back when they shut down the Facebook Journalism Project. We will be excited to hear your uh, thoughts and outrage at that time. <laughs> Thanks, Pete. Turning now to the news of the week, I'm joined by two of my favorite colleagues, Columbia Journalism Review Delacorte Fellows, Karen K. Ho and Meg Dalton. We start this week by turning back the clock to a meeting in the Oval Office last Thursday between Donald Trump and several lawmakers. Trump was presented with a bipartisan immigration deal that would include protections for immigrants from Haiti, El Salvador, and African countries. In response to that plan, he reportedly said, why are we having all these people from shithole countries come here? He then questioned why the United States could not bring more people from countries such as Norway, whose prime minister he had met with earlier in the week. So, Karen, there was a lot of debate over whether or not different news outlets should use the word shithole. Uh, we've obviously decided that we will. Um, but there was also a focus on the intent behind those words. I think the debate was whether or not it was indicative of a longstanding history of racism, you know, a multi-decade history of racism and racist actions by the president in regards to especially black and brown Americans. To me, it was a turning point in the conversation in regards to how we treat these moments because they're going to continue to happen. And responses both from lawmakers and people working in the media in terms of putting them in context, but also saying, if we're surprised by this, we shouldn't be because there have been signs and specific moments that were clearly indicative of racism before in the media. Yeah, I was struck by the response on cable news, uh, specifically CNN, where both Anderson Cooper and Don Lemon used the word racist to describe those comments. And that's something that there was a little bit more dancing around uh, in earlier incidents, like after the march in Charlottesville and uh, Trump calling out mostly black NFL players for kneeling. Yeah, it's just like the debate we had, you know, a year ago about using lie and liar in reference to things that he said and to Trump himself, I think. There comes a point where there's enough evidence to call someone, i.e. the president, a racist and like say, this is racist language, this is a racist statement, this is a racist person. As opposed to just racially divisive. Or racially charged, use racially charged language. Like the euphemisms that have been employed in the past are incredibly frustrating. And I think you can, at this point, you can call it what it is. Yeah, we had a big conversation about this after Charlottesville. CJR actually hosted an event in Charlottesville with several journalists who had ties to the community. And Jamel Bowie from Slate talked about the importance of using accurate language to describe the president's remarks because it does send a signal to readers that you as journalists understand the same thing as they understand about those words. I think reflecting on the fact that journalism is supposed to reflect the truth and to tell the truth, and if journalists continue to sort of dance around whether or not this language and these actions are racist, then we're not being fair to our audience and we're not respecting their intelligence and their ability to observe firsthand um, what is going on in this country in regards to laws being changed or policies that are, you know, shifting dramatically in only a matter of months in the first couple of months of this administration. And there was some pushback uh, from 
the president himself belatedly and other lawmakers who were in the room, Republican lawmakers who were in the room. Uh, Meg, is it worth going into the sort of denials or soft denials that were issued after these reports came out? Um, it's just another example of them and their alternative facts. They'll say one thing and then say they didn't say it. And it's just this complete uh, debate over what was said, what wasn't said, and facts. And Yeah, I think the fact that there was no immediate denial from the White House when the Post presented them with this reporting is very telling. Turning to another journalism controversy from the past week, on Saturday night, the website babe.net published an explosive article about actor and author Aziz Ansari and alleged sexual misconduct that he was involved in. So Meg, can you summarize for us what this controversy involved? Yes, as you mentioned, it was a site called babe.net, which is a online news organization that targets women in their late teens and early 20s. And they had reached out to a woman that they referred to as Grace. Um, She's anonymous. The story kind of chronicled a date she had with Aziz Ansari in 2017. She had met him at a Emmys party and they had exchanged phone numbers and arranged a date uh, for for when they were both back in Manhattan. During their date, uh, she became increasingly uncomfortable with the way that he was and wasn't responding to both what she calls verbal and nonverbal cues with regards to how they were interacting in a sexual manner. The story, much like Cat Person, the fictional take from The New Yorker at the end of last year, tackles that gray area of kind of consent and sexual misconduct as part of the Me Too movement. Um, But of course, there is a lot of backlash to the piece, both in terms of Grace herself, um, as well as the reporting done. That controversy came from a lot of different directions, um, from writers with very different perspectives about what Babe.net and the author of the piece, Katie Way, did wrong. Um, How would you summarize kind of your feelings and your approach to this? I think it's an incredibly important story to tell, um, especially when kind of that gray area is incredibly hard to tackle journalistically. But the way that it was reported was done in an amateur, kind of sloppy way that was ultimately a disservice to the woman, Grace. Um, And there was an incredible piece on Jezebel uh, that really summarized that this situation shows how to and how not to report on sexual harassment, sexual misconduct, et cetera, especially as it's becoming, you know, increasingly a big part of journalism, um, you know, ever since the Weinstein story broke. Yeah, this obviously comes in the midst of the Me Too movement, which has, as you mentioned, been going on since the Weinstein story broke in early October. And it's a movement and a type of reporting that is starting to get some pushback from certain corners of the journalism industry. That pushback highlighted what's at stake in terms of the discussion about consent and, you know, um, what women have to deal with both in and out of the workplace. And to be quite frank, it offered up this this uh, missed execution of, of a very important topic gave a lot of ammunition for critics of the Me Too movement and the discussion regarding um, expectations regarding consent and sexual relations and relationships between men and women. I think and I think that ammunition that you were saying is kind of was best shown in two critical pieces from Barry Weiss in The New York Times and Caitlin Flanagan in The Atlantic, both kind of problematic second wave neoliberal feminists at this point who should probably just stop writing uh, opinion pieces. 
But yeah, they they were able to capitalize on kind of the sloppy nature and like the, you know, use of certain details, like the type of wine that was, uh, you know, had by Aziz and Grace or the fact that, you know, she did engage intimately with him to an extent. Um, They were able to use those details to their advantage in what were really tone death takes. I think it's worth mentioning that a lot of the work in reporting on this issue is anticipating the criticism and preemptively reporting what is required in anticipation of that criticism. So we've seen, you know, with the Roy Moore case at the Washington Post, they really talked to everyone um, that they that spoke that spoke to them, confirming that these stories had been confirmed or they had told these stories to their family members, to close relationships and, you know, even reported details that critics may have tried to dig up in an attempt to delegitimize the the seriousness of the story. And I think that is um, that is incredibly resource intensive and underestimated until you have a case like this. Yeah, I think one of the big takeaways is that reporting these stories, uh, which again have become more and more a part of our national conversation, requires expertise, uh, requires a great deal of care, and that not every outlet, not every reporter is suited to do that. Finally, we turn to some sad news from the New York journalism community. The All, a nearly decade-old site that served as the incubator for a lot of talent, a lot of young talent in the industry, announced on Tuesday that it is ceasing operation at the end of the month. I think it's important to note that The All and its sister site, um, The Hairpin, which was started a few years later, incubated a lot of talent that came from within the New York media scene and also people who aspired to join the New York media scene. You know, people like Gia Tolentino and Jay Caspian Kang really strong voices. They came from all different kinds of parts of the country, and they were able to write crazy, weird, you know, incredibly funny, interesting things that really wouldn't have had a place anywhere else on the internet. Yeah, that legacy of launching the careers of people like Tolentino, who's at The New Yorker, or Jay Caspian Kang, who's at Vice News Tonight, and it's con- and contributes to the New York Times Magazine is definitely one of uh, the legacies of these sites. Um, And I I think the reaction across social media, especially in the circles that uh, we run in, right, in this New York media relatively young scene, um, there was real sadness for the end of this place that did give a lot of people their starts. Yeah, it makes you wonder, like, now the, the future, you know, journalists of tomorrow, where are they gonna get their start now? When places like Gawker and the All are now coming to a close, uh, you know, where do they turn? And right. how do we, what is the, what's the new funnel for talent? Yeah, the All was launched uh, just after the financial crisis in sort of a golden era for blogging. Um, it, again, propelled a number of different writers to greater heights. Corey Sika, the current editor of the New York Times style section, was one of its founding editors. Um, you know, this was just an important place in the last decade uh, for media, again, as Karen mentioned, not just in New York, but around the country, um, and it will be missed. That was our show. Thanks, as always, for kicking it with us. Thanks to Emily Bell and my colleagues Karen and Meg for being here to talk it over with me. Please check out all the great content we've got up at cjera.org, and we'll see you next week. 